1: and welcome to another episode of Driving Law, the only legal podcast that deals with how driving law drives the law. I'm your host, Kyla Lee. And today, as I promised last week, we have some very exciting guests. Uh, They are the authors of the new uh, and only, to my knowledge, impaired driving law textbook that deals with the provisions of Bill C-46. It's published by Emond Publishing out of Toronto, Uh, Impaired Driving and Other Criminal Code Driving Offenses, A Practitioner's Handbook. Uh, it is an excellent book. I've read it and really, uh, actually, really enjoyed it, which probably speaks to what level of nerd I am. Um, but it's it's full of useful information. My one complaint is that there is not enough BC case law in here, um, which is fine. Um, both of the authors are from Ontario, but uh, there are some BC cases that go slightly different than some of the things that they say. Um, for the better, for the defense, but that's how we roll in British Columbia. Um, But nevertheless, this is a fantastic book. It's already been useful to me in my practice, and I'm really happy that we have uh, Karen Jokinen and Peter Keene joining us to talk about the book, um, and more specifically about some of the significant changes that we're going to see to the impaired driving regime in this country. Thank you again to Karen Jokinen and Peter Keen for joining us on the podcast. Uh, they're here to talk about their new book from Eamond Publishing. It's the Criminal Law Series, and their book is called Impaired Driving and Other Criminal Code Driving Offences, a Practitioner's Handbook. And if you keep listening to the end of the podcast, they're very graciously giving us a discount code that you can use to get 10% off your copy as long as you order it in the first uh, couple days of January. So So thank you again, Karen and Peter, for joining us.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having us.
1: Yes, it's a pleasure. Your book focuses on all of the huge changes that have come into force and effect as of December 18th under Bill C-46. And I thought uh, we would start by maybe going through what are the major changes that have uh, come into effect now in Canada.
2: Sure. So um, I can talk about that. And I've got to tell you, when we were writing this thing, we didn't actually start out uh, intending to write a book on the new law that's just come into effect. What actually happened is Imond contacted us and said, look, are you interested in writing a book? We want a book for our series dealing with impaired driving, dealing with other criminal code driving offenses. And we said, sure. So we started writing this thing in uh, early 2017. And about uh, four or five months into that, uh, Parliament introduced a uh, bill C-46 which quite literally repealed all criminal code driving offenses. And replace them with a brand new scheme. So it is the uh, most significant changes to uh, criminal code driving law since the introduction of impaired driving uh, back in I think 1925, if I recall correctly. Um, and so we then spent the next sort of year and a half working out what the new law would be, because we figured nobody would want to write a uh, would want to buy a book that was about the old law and ended up working on a book that would describe what the law is. it will be uh, now that it's come into force. So the law has just come into the force as of December the 18th. Um, It'll be literally days old by the time uh, this podcast goes out to the public. And uh, um, uh, an awful lot has changed. So first of all, sections 249 to 261 of the Criminal Code have been repealed. A new uh, part of the Criminal Code has been introduced. Um, It is now Part 8.1 of the Criminal Code, which is a new section and will commence after, I believe, uh, uh, when commences at Section 320.11 of the Criminal Code. So uh, the really 10-second introduction to this is 70% of the law is about the same. (laughs) 30% of the law has changed very, very significantly, and I don't think in in the, the... time we've got available for the podcast, we can describe everything that's changed. But what I can tell you is some of the really sort of highlights of the legislation. The first is one of the flagship changes to this um, uh, legislation was the change of the old over-80 offence. So the old over-80 offence criminalized driving with over 80 milligrams of alcohol um, in 100 milliliters of blood. The new offence is 80 or over, but it's not at the time of driving. The offense is now the two hours following driving. So it's a very, very different offense than what it was before. Second major change, they've introduced drug uh, per se limits. So just like with alcohol, you had impaired driving by alcohol and the over 80 offense. You've now got a drug per se offense that criminalizes having certain quantities of drugs in your blood while you're operating a motor vehicle. The third offense is a what we call a low blood drug concentration offense. This is a new offense that criminalizes having lower quantities of a, a drug in your system. Other offenses have changed too. Dangerous driving has changed. Failing to stop has changed. This bill isn't just about marijuana. It's not just about um, uh, over 80. It's not just about the per se limits. Multiple offenses have changed. Having said that, Lots is still the same. So, for example, the impaired driving offense has changed somewhat, but when you actually take a look at the new legislation and the history behind it, the actual offense hasn't really changed at all. Now, I think Karen is actually going to talk about some of the language changes because for those of us practicing criminal law, we're going to have to get used to some very, very different language now.
0: Yes, the um, language changes are um, substantial in that we no longer call anything a motor vehicle or a vessel or an aircraft or railway um, that seemed to be polluting really a lot of the sections because they had to uh, enunciate each and every mode of transportation so instead uh, it's called a conveyance whether it's a motor vehicle vessel aircraft or railway it would be impaired operation of a conveyance Uh, as well the terminology uh, operate um, under Section 320.11 uh, means to drive it or have care or control of it. So no longer is there the distinction um, in an information or in the legislation um, charging uh, driving or care or control. It's operate, includes both driving and care or control. As well, um, when you look at the wording of uh, impaired operation, it indicates um, impaired to any degree, which really is an adaptation of the case law from Stellato. Um, and so that is right in the legislation now. And as well, when we were dealing with screening demands, um, what was in the legislation was forthwith. The case law, for example, the Ontario Court of Appeal decision in Kwanzaa had indicated that forthwith means immediately. So in Section 320.27, when dealing with uh, screening demands, uh, the legislation specifically says immediately. So in our opinion, those type of uh, word changes with respect to impairment and immediately it doesn't really change the law, it just codifies it.
1: But it does change one thing in relation not to impaired driving charges, but in relation to the um, operation what used to be driving well disqualified and is now operation well prohibited. Um, at least I know in B.C. we never charged anybody here um, with with disqualified care and control. Um, you had to actually do something with the vehicle to sort of fall under the ambit of that. And that sort of opens that up for more people to be captured under that provision, do you think?
0: Yes, I, I, that is correct. And what's also interesting in the prohibition section is if you are released on a recognizance, And the term of the recognizance is not to operate a motor vehicle and you do, you can be charged with drive while prohibit or operate while prohibited.
2: Yeah. Uh, Another section, for example, is the dangerous driving provision. The old offense used to be dangerous driving while operating under the old term. And operating under the old term meant driving. Now, because operate includes care and control, somebody in physical care and control of vehicles, let's say, for example, I drive a vehicle into heavy traffic and park in uh, a, a busy uh, intersection in downtown Vancouver. People don't know when I've got there, but the police arrive me there and see me deliberately blocking traffic and potentially causing accidents. I can now be, called, uh, be charged with dangerous operation, even though I'm not actually driving the vehicle at the time. So the language changes can make a difference. I tend to agree with Karen. A lot of the changes are um, intended to simplify the legislation, but some of the language changes can make a difference in, in what people can be charged with.
1: I think it's also it's good because it also opens the door for more resolution of certain offenses. Like I know in in British Columbia often, um, and I don't think this happens as much in Ontario from my experience dealing with cases there, but um, you can resolve an impaired file with a plea to dangerous because it opens up the door for the opportunity for a conditional discharge. Um, but you wouldn't have that opportunity if you were merely in care and control of the vehicle. So it does open up more avenues for resolution, from my perspective anyway.
2: One of the important things to recognize about um, the way in which um criminal driving legislation works in Canada, Is the legislation is one thing, how the federal government decides to create the legislation is one thing. But how the provinces respond to that and react to that is different in each province. By way of example, in BC and Alberta have some fairly stringent um, automatic roadside prohibition schemes. Ontario doesn't, uh, but it has another system in place uh, provincially that results in some significant consequences for anybody who's uh, charged, Example with drinking and driving. So how the provinces react can be very, very different. And you're right, in Ontario, um, a resolution with a dangerous in place of impaired would not be the normal thing you would expect.
1: No, I, I've tried that. <laughs> it didn't go well. Um, but Peter, you you were also mentioning the um, eighty and over, and I found that section of the book fascinating when I read it, because when I initially saw the change, I didn't really understand the rationale behind that. And you explained it really well in the book. So do you want to share a little more insight about that?
2: Sure. Um, And I can tell you, Karen and I worked uh, extensively on that, because that's going to be one of the charges that affects the largest number of people coming through the justice system. So here's the story. Under the law as it was, um, the time at which the over eighty offense was committed was the time you're behind the, the, the wheel of the vehicle. So I'm committing the over 80 offense. If I've got over 80 milligrams of, uh, of alcohol in my blood, and I'm either driving or I'm in care and control of the vehicle. The moment that I get out of that vehicle and I stop driving it or I stop being in care and control, the offense has effectively ended. Okay, But that created a problem for the Crown and a problem for the police. Because the way in which the state blood-alcohol concentration is, is they work it out usually through breath-testing equipment, and that's always taken after the time of the offence. And so the Crown had a problem. The problem was this. The offence was at the time of driving or care and control, but the evidence of blood-alcohol concentration was always a later time. And the way uh, Parliament dealt with that was by creating a whole bunch of fairly complicated presumptions it allowed the Crown to assume, or allowed the court to assume, that the blood alcohol concentration at the time of driving was at the same of time of testing. Now, I hope that sounded complicated, because that was my super simple explanation for <laughs> it. And it. And the actual legislation was more complicated. It created a number of potential defenses, it created a number of difficulties. What Parliament has done in the new legislation is that they've done two things. First of all, the old legislation was over 80 Now it's 80 or over. And the reason for that is the breath testing equipment that was used was always um, uh, gave, gave readings that were more favorable to the accused person, and those readings were truncated or reduced down to 80. So, for example, if I had readings of 89, my blood alcohol concentration would be reported as being 80, which was not an offense, even though, in fact, I was over 80 at the time of the offense. The second major change, and and the bigger change, is Parliament made the time of the offence the two-hour period that is after driving, okay? So if I'm stopped now, in an hour I'm taken to the police station, and in an hour my blood alcohol concentration is over 80, I've now committed the offence. Driving or operation of a motor vehicle is still an element of the offense that still has to be proven, to, proven by the state, by the Crown. But the Crown no longer needs a bunch of presumptions to read back the blood alcohol concentration to the time of operation of the motor vehicle. So the time of the offense now is the two-hour post-operation period of time.
1: So, so do any of the presumptions then still stand? Like the require or the requirements for the presumptions rather, like the requirement that samples be taken as soon as practicable, or, or is it all gone with this change?
2: It's not all gone. Um, Many of those requirements still exist, but they're different. So, under the old system, you've just mentioned the words as soon as practicable. Under the old system samples had to be taken as soon as practicable. And if they weren't, the crown lost the benefit of the presumption. That means, let's say I'm a crown. Um, let's say Karen's been drinking and driving. Sorry, Karen, I'm going to make you a drinking and driving. <laughs> so Karen's been drinking and driving, and she ends up with readings of uh, 89, or let's say 92, an hour after driving. But the police didn't take it as soon as practicable. That would mean I, as the crown, lose the benefit of the presumption. I can no longer prove that Karen is over 80 at the time of the offense. What I can prove is she was operating vehicle, and at some later time she was over 80. But that doesn't get me a conviction, so there'd be an acquittal. Under the way the legislation is now, samples are still required to be taken um, uh, quickly, But if there's a problem with the way those samples are taken, the defense is going to have to challenge that through a constitutional application known as a charter challenge, which is essentially a challenge um, under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that seeks to have that evidence excluded.
0: Yes, there still is the as-soon-as-practicable modification in there, but it's just no longer part of any presumption. It's a charter challenge.
1: So now it becomes either a Section 8 or a Section 9 issue.
0: It would be yeah. a Section Eight
1: issue, yes. Okay. Well, that's—I uh, mean, that's—that's that's interesting because when I was thinking through this legislation and thinking, why would they? Why would they change this? This makes no sense. And—and and then I read the book and I was like, oh, this explanation actually makes perfect sense. I'm not no. sure that I agree with it.
0: <laughs> but uh, <laughs> as a defense lawyer, no. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but it, at least there's some rationale there.
0: And and don't forget as well, with the new legislation, basically, bolus drinking is uh, not a defense at all. And um, if if, uh, an operator of a conveyance uh, consumes alcohol or drugs after um, they cease operation, um, then it may be a defense, but uh, basically they can't have had a uh, reasonable expectation that they'd have to provide a sample.
1: Right. Now there's also, w- along with um, this 80 and over sort of uh, within, um, uh, within a couple hours of when you were driving, there's also the same type of provisions, Karen, in relation to drugs.
0: Yes, there are uh, three drug per se offenses. And uh, one of them, and and they're all located in Section 320.14, it's like the Income Tax Act, right? 320.141 C, D, and E, uh, or C and D. And one is if your blood drug concentration is equal to or over a prescribed limit in your blood within two hours of operation, um, that's number one. Number two, if you have a combined blood alcohol concentration with a blood drug concentration equal to or over what the prescribed limit is uh, within two hours of operating a conveyance and what Peter had referred to which was the low blood uh, drug concentration, if you have equal to or over a prescribed level of drug in your blood but it's below what the uh, blood drug concentration that I mentioned earlier is, within two hours of operating, that's an offense. And um, the concentrations are not in the code itself. It's in, a, um, it's in the regulations. So, for example, marijuana, THC, is five nanograms per milliliter of blood um, currently, And uh, anything else uh, other than one thing is any detectable level. So if it's LSD, psilocybin, PCP, ketamine, cocaine, methamphetamine, if there's any detectable level, then uh, you're you're basically over. Um, The only exception to that is GHB, the kind of known date-rape drug, is 5 milligrams per liter of, uh, of that drug in your blood.
1: And that's because that drug can be naturally occurring in the human body in some small concentrations? Yes. Okay. What do you think of, of the fact that they're doing this by regulation as opposed to, you know, writing it right into the statute like they do with a blood alcohol level?
0: Um, you know, it kind of tells me that um, it may change over time.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: because it just really depends. I I don't... I think when Peter and I were discussing um, these changes in the book, you know, it's really difficult because um, I don't think they really have done a whole bunch of testing on people because of the um, ethical part to do that. Um, So, uh, you know, who knows? The... The more most popular one uh, that I think everybody is concerned about is the THC level. And I mean, I'm not a toxicologist, so I really don't know um, whether, in fact, five nanograms does affect your ability to operate a conveyance. But one would think if it's in there, it does. Um, However, you know, if you're under. Um, and you're low BDC, uh, it's a maximum penalty of $1,000, and there's no driving prohibition, and and I'm just not sure why that is.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, there there's most provinces have provisions that would cause there to be a provincial driving prohibition in effect in any event, which would then lead to issues with the new uh, new federal driving while prohibited or operating while prohibited charge. So they get you one way. <laughs>
0: if they right. Except I don't think our Highway Traffic Act has changed to reflect the uh, drug per se limits. Peter, do you know if it has yet?
2: My understanding is we've not seen a, a change in Ontario yet, and I, and I can't tell you off the top of my head whether other provinces have changed their, their uh, provincial legislation yet. Um, there are provisions, there's a, there's a rule called the Rule of rolling Incorporation, which means that if, legis- if, one, if, if federal legislation, for example, changes, provincial legislation uh, still referring to the old legislation will now be considered to refer to the new version of the new legislation that was the same as the old legislation. Um, and so we're, we're yet to see how provinces are going to respond uh, to this legislation.
1: Right, especially with sort of the creation of new offenses that didn't exist before. In BC, we have a provision that just refers to a motor vehicle related criminal code offense other than the driving while well disqualified. So um, yes, and, and we've, we've got the easy help. way out.
0: <laughs> yes. Right. And, and the other thing, too, is, I mean, alcohol has been tested for years and years and years, right? The effects of alcohol on um, on a person's ability to operate a motor vehicle, um, but uh, in terms of the drug testing, that just isn't hasn't been done. So, uh, as much as perhaps it should be, uh, so that's another reason, Kayla, why I think that uh, this is in the regulations rather than in the code.
1: Okay. What do you think, Peter? Um, I know you work for the Crown, so do you have any thoughts on the extent of these changes and and how uh, sort of significant this is to your work?
0: Um.
2: Uh, I mean, uh, I think it goes without saying that I don't speak for the for the Attorney General no, of, of Ontario. Not. <laughs> That's not my place, and I can't do so. Uh, I don't think it's any secret um, that uh, frontline crowns do expect to see some changes. Uh, do we expect to see some changes in individual cases? Do we expect to see some changes in the types of, of uh, uh, arguments coming forward? Sure, you'd expect that with new legislation. Um uh, so we expect, like I said at the beginning, these are the biggest changes to the criminal code in many, many decades uh, in relation to driving offenses. So, sure, we expect a number of alterations to the to existing practices.
1: Are you finding, either of you, finding yourselves overwhelmed with the changes or are we not really there yet because we're just in sort of the first week of seeing charges being laid?
2: We're, we're not going to see... Um, a, you're not going to see cases on this for, for some time. Uh, you will see some cases initially with some of the procedural changes, and you'll see some decisions on that. Um, but you won't see new cases like charges charged yesterday um, uh, come to court in trial setting probably for six months or so. We expect there to be a significant growth in case law sort of in the six-month to two-year range uh, when you'll start seeing a lot of these cases coming to trial.
1: Okay. Um, now, there's also changes in relation to the bodily harm and death uh, provisions, and more specifically, the, the aspect of causation that I find fascinating. Um, Karen, do you want to expand on that a little bit?
0: Sure. Um, you know, you have, in the old section, dangerous driving caused death or bodily harm. There really, it has been no change um, it still is the accused driving must be the significant cause of the accident that led to death or bodily harm. Um, what we, what you do see a change in is impaired operation caused death or bodily harm. That has changed. Now, if you'll remember the old, um, in the old regime, uh, over eighty and uh, cause death or bodily harm. Uh, The way that case law has, uh, or the way that section was written, now the impaired operation caused death or bodily harm is the exact same. So in that the Crown has to prove that the accused committed the underlying offense while operating the conveyance, and that, and it caused death or bodily harm to another person, but now the Crown does not have to prove that it was the impairment Mm -hmm. and never had to prove that it was the per se limit that was the contributing cause of the accident. So that has changed. And what you also see is in the fail or refuse to comply offense. Um, So if somebody fails to uh, provide, uh, you know, whatever sample that they're asked to do, there's no causation requirement and um, in which that the individual's operation must have caused the death or bodily harm of another person. That's not required. All that's required is the person knew or was reckless as to whether they were involved in an accident that resulted in death or bodily harm of another person, and the, the accused driving does not have to have caused the death or bodily harm.
1: And that, I think, is scary, like from the perspective of defense counsel, um, because you could have a a client who is facing, you know, the most serious sort of penalties that you can get in an impaired driving investigation for not having done something um, that necessarily caused anybody any harm, and yet they're going to be sentenced on the basis of as though they did.
0: Oh, absolutely. And trust me, when uh, Peter and I were analyzing this section of Bill C-46, there were, I would say, hours of debate about why, I mean, from my perspective, that uh, this was not fair at all. And I came up with a whole bunch of scenarios. And Peter, from the Crown's perspective, was, you know, being more supportive of it Um, given that, you know, if you fail to provide your sample that, um, well, Peter can probably explain his position better because I don't agree with it, so I block it from my mind.
2: (laughs) 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 Uh, We have to remember about... um cases like over 80 or impaired driving is the criminal behavior there is the act of operating a vehicle when your ability to do so has been impaired by some drug or alcohol or where you are over a, a legally prescribed limit for that. The basis for liability for refusal is different. It's not based on the manner of your driving or anything like that basis for liability for a refusal offense is a refusal to comply with a legal obligation to provide a sample uh, when, you're, when you're required to do so by law. So effectively it's it's more akin to interfering with the investigation. The basis of liability is different, um, and at this point, we we don't know how this is going to be interpreted in the case law, what types of sentences or anything like that will ultimately be imposed for those types of uh, those types of breaches. So we're in very very young days right now with the refusal offence and the refusal cause death or bodily harm offence.
1: I think though we have seen, you know, at least in the last year, some maybe hinting from the Supreme Court of Canada in, in Souter about uh, where things might go, where there's been a uh, a refusal and there's been a death or, or bodily harm, and how much discretion sentencing judges can have in taking into account other factors, like, for example, that you didn't actually cause or contribute to the death or bodily harm um, in deciding what an appropriate sentence is so I I mean if it's not found unconstitutional I I think we'll see a lot of discretion being used by sentencing judges in those cases I don't know if you agree
0: (laughs) I agree with that I I just you know from a defense lawyer's perspective I, I just think it's kind of sad that that type of liability attaches to somebody when you know, there was absolutely no causation, but that's from a defense lawyer's perspective.
1: Well, the other thing I think from defense lawyers' perspective that is shocking about this legislation um, and that I'm still, I'll probably never get over it in my entire career, is the new sort of broad police powers under the law. Um, and they have sort of two, one in relation to the drug screening and another in relation to the random breath testing or mandatory alcohol screening as it's set out in the legislation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Uh, sure, I can talk about the mandatory alcohol screening. Um, under the, obviously, under the uh, uh, old legislation, police had to have reasonable suspicion that a person had alcohol in their blood before being able to lawfully demand they provide a sample. Under the new legislation, they have to have that if they don't have the ASD or approved screening device with them. Okay, So they still have to have the reasonable suspicion. But if they do have the ASD with them, then they can demand at any time, without any suspicion, without any grounds, that a driver or operator, I should say, has to provide a roadside screening uh, sample into the device. And um, if they refuse, they're committing an offensive of. Uh, refusing to provide a sample.
1: Do you think we're going to see with that a lot of challenges to what it means to have an ASD with you? Like whether it's, is it a minute away? Is it in your hand? Is it in the back of your police car? Or do you think that that's an area that's not really going to be explored in litigation?
0: The legislation seems to me that the police officer has to have it in their vehicle. I think if it's a minute away, they don't have it. That's the way I read it, but Peter probably reads it differently.
2: <laughs> um, the legislation says it has to be with them. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's the type of language that's being used. What I can say is, I mean, um, uh, you, you've alluded earlier to sort of constitutional challenges, and while we expect there'll be some litigation in this area, I'm not going to comment on, on constitutional challenges. What I can say is when Parliament enacted this, um, there's some detailed discussion of this in the materials before Parliament. Professor Hogg, uh, the renowned constitutional scholar, provided an opinion to Parliament Mm -hmm. uh, that dealt with this, and essentially that opinion uh, revealed a number of things. First, it revealed that frontline officers, uh, like any human being, can miss people who've been drinking and driving, and the trouble with people who are drinking and driving at a roadside check stop or something like that is they'll continue being a danger to the public unless they're removed from the road. Um, And so mandatory alcohol screening is in widespread use uh, in other parts of the world, both in some states and in Europe. The mandatory alcohol testing increases the likelihood of individuals being detected. It has been credited with saving significant numbers of lives. And as I'm sure you're aware, the leading cause of criminal death in Canada for decades has been drinking and driving. Not murders, not stabbings, not shootings, not hangings, not anything else. It's drinking and driving. And so given that this has been the leading cause of criminal death in Canada for decades, um, uh, Parliament has made a decision to intervene to sort of um, uh, increase the uh, potential for saving lives at the roadside. And so that's sort of the nature of the justification that Professor Hogg speaks about in his uh, opinion to Parliament.
1: I I had the opportunity to read the opinion when I was um I was testifying as a witness before the uh Senate and the House of Commons. Um I'm not sure obviously I know you're not going to comment on the constitutionality Peter but I'm not sure I agree with uh with his analysis. Um, and I, I imagine that uh Karen probably shares a lot of my concerns about sort of the huge infringement of of section 8 um and the elimination of any standard as well as the disproportionate impact that this is going to have on people of color. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that, Karen?
0: Well, in my opinion, it's not only Section 8, it's Section 9 and 10B, right? Because Mm -hmm. as soon as you're detained, um, your Section 10B rights obviously are there, but they're being mm, excused, if you will, in order for this screening to occur. But I I do have a a difficult time um, or have some difficulty. How far does the legislature get to go when they're allowing the state to take something from someone, being their breath samples, without... without, Any grounds whatsoever, you know, I mean, what's next? Are they going to be able to open the front door of our house?
1: Yeah, well, lots of people are hiding illegal things in their house. So maybe, you know, because it's so hard for the police to get a warrant and get inside people's houses, just allowing a little peek would be okay. But
0: but you see, well, but, it, but just
2: to be clear, this there's is my nothing. Issue. I mean, nothing whatsoever in the legislation that permits anything like that. Pardon? There's not. There's nothing in the legislation that permits anything like that, um, uh, whatsoever. Uh, there's nothing to suggest people can enter police can enter individuals' houses to do this type of stuff. There's nothing in the new legislation about anything like that. This is about. I mean, you've got to remember the the. the There are no new stopping powers in the legislation. There are no new powers to pull over vehicles. None of that exists. All this means is at the roadside, instead of a police officer saying, have you had anything to drink? Okay, on your way, sir, which they can do right now. They say, can you please blow into this? Blow into this, and you're on your way. It's fast. It's short. Um, So um, uh, the, the, the only change is change in the standard that police officers can use to make a demand at the roadside when they're already exercising lawful powers.
1: Why, why is it, Peter, do you think that there's no standard or the elimination of a standard when they're already exercising lawful powers for the alcohol, but they've left a standard in place um, or created a standard, I suppose, for the drug screening equipment?
2: What I can tell you, so first of all, I can't comment on what Parliament's motivation on that was was whatsoever. Um, What I can tell you is that um, with drug screening equipment, that there is is now an ability for the police to use drug screening equipment at the side of the road. But the state of that equipment um, in terms of its development is different from the uh, state of uh, sort of breath testing equipment. Breath testing equipment has been in existence since the, since the 1950s. It's very, very well-established um, uh, equipment at this point in time. Drug screening equipment is new. So I, I can't comment on why Parliament chose to take one approach with respect to um, uh, breath samples for alcohol and different uh, approach with respect to drug screening equipment. We do know from some of the reports that were presented to Parliament that um, drug screening equipment takes longer to um Use at the roadside, and all I can really say is there there are questions at this point in time about uh, how effective this drug screening equipment will be at the roadside, and I don't think we're in a position to answer that at this point in the time.
1: No, of course not. Now, at the time you were writing the book, um, and even up until now, at the time we're recording this podcast, there was really only one uh, device being used um, or being considered, and now it's been approved for the purposes of doing the drug screening. And that's the Drager Drug Test 5000. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've also left it open to um, approve others by regulation.
2: Sure, which is the same as uh, for drinking and driving equipment, uh, alcohol-approved screening devices, approved instruments. So, alcohol alcohol testing equipment has been a has been an issue for regulation for some time.
1: Right. Um, okay, and what about, uh, I mean, you've already touched on this a bit, are, you, are we expecting a lot of constitutional litigation over the mandatory alcohol screening? I ask with a smile on my face. <laughs> uh,
0: I, um, from the defense bar, um, it seems that, uh, you know, people are, if not already, uh, drafting, probably in the process of as soon as a case comes through the door, but one comment I wanted to make about the, um, the uh, drug screening device, I know, and I, I'm not sure about you, Peter, where you are, um, but I don't know a lot of police forces who have invested in it at this stage um, because I don't, I don't think it is um, scientifically um, accurate to the point where it can um, pass charter scrutiny.
1: I would agree with you on that. Um, I think there's also a lot of concerns about just the operational requirements for it as far as the temperature. Um, We've talked about it extensively on this podcast. But I also, uh, an interesting issue that you you guys discuss in the book is um, I also have concerns with the fact that it's detecting the presence of uh, a drug and and giving a positive result for that, which may or may not actually make it effective from a legal standpoint in giving officers grounds to make an arrest, particularly where it comes to a THC offense.
0: Yes, I agree with you. Yeah,
2: and I can tell you, one of the things we recommend, uh, again, I, I can't comment on that, but what I can say is that one of the things we do recommend is whether you're a crown or a defense counsel um, or an individual charged with this type of offense, is consider retaining a toxicologist to come and uh, take a look at the tests that he used, come and take a look at the equipment, and speak to you about what various tests mean in, in particular circumstances. Um, this is an area where having a toxicologist uh, to come and speak to you makes uh, is an awful Sense. I recall Dr. Corbett, who we've, Karen and I have appeared on with panels before, he used to comment that, look, retaining a toxicologist, particularly if you're a lawyer, is not a tremendously expensive proposition if you're simply looking for an opinion as to how should I approach this case. It's something we recommend in the book that uh, counsel, both crowns and defense, consider doing when dealing with drug-related offenses.
1: Yeah, and throughout the book, you have a number of, of sort of their, their set-off in red, which is really helpful. Um you know, practice tips for people to to help them with um, dealing with these new provisions, whether it's in defending their clients or um, or in just understanding them. And I found those, as I was reading the book, to be very, you know, very helpful information for people who are trying to f- sort of navigate this new law and what they need to be doing um, to best uh, either defend their clients or understand where things are going in their cases. Um, so if you're reading it, <laughs> watch out for those because they're useful. Um what, uh, what about sentencing? We haven't talked about that yet. What is changing in relation to sentencing?
0: So here's the, something. First of all, let me say this. For first offenders, um, there are new minimums. So you still have a um, $1,000 minimum fine, but that's only if your blood alcohol concentration is under 120 if it is uh, between one hundred and twenty and one hundred and sixty, the minimum fine is fifteen hundred dollars, and if it is one hundred and sixty or more, it's two thousand dollars. But the minimum jail sentences remain the same. Right. Um, and what we also have to um, know is that if you, uh, for impairment, the minimum fine is a thousand dollars. But for a fail or refuse a breath sample, it's two thousand dollars.
1: And the rationale behind that is to sort of discourage people from refusing to try and avoid the consequences of of a conviction.
0: Exactly. So yeah. if you are not litigating but negotiating a deal, um, you may want to, you know, make sh- and if the person has blown over one twenty. Uh, plead to the impaired because it's cheaper. <laughs>
1: um, there's also a big change in that the the curative discharge provision, which we never had um, in B.C. anyway, but lots of other provinces did have, that's gone. What do you guys think of that?
0: Yeah, we never had it in Ontario
1: either. <laughs> <laughs> we just yeah. jealously stared at other provinces. <laughs> um,
2: Manitoba had it. And um, speaking to Manitoba lawyers, um, it was something that um, uh, clients would make use of uh, because it avoided some of the mandatory sort of minimum sentences. It, It provided a discharge. Um, so there's some concern that you may see litigation increase in provinces that did have a curative discharge regime.
1: Now, they do have some provisions, though, that relate to um, provincial ignition interlock programs and the wait times for those. Do you want to talk about how that's changed?
0: Uh, it has. Sorry, were you asking me, Kayla, because I can hardly hear Peter.
1: Oh, uh, either of you.
0: Um, I can tell you that with respect to a first offence, um, there's no wait time. But your Provincial Traffic Act has to be amended in order for that to occur. Right. With respect to the second offense, it's a three-month wait time, and with respect to the third, it's a six-month wait time.
2: Yes, the federal legislation is improved for, for individuals convicted in that regard, I believe.
1: Do you, do you know why, um, and I know, again, I'm asking you to speculate about Parliament's rationale, but why it was that they, they removed the curative discharge?
2: I really can't answer for Parliament. I, no. I just I, I can't comment on that, no.
1: <laughs> I love to just speculate about what Parliament does.
0: <laughs> but instead of the curative discharge, there's the new treatment regime.
1: Right. Um, okay, and then um, Peter, you had wanted to talk about uh, some pretty significant evidentiary changes, um, particularly in relation to when toxicologists may no longer be required. Um, and I find this entire area fascinating.
2: Sure. So the the science <clears throat> that uh, toxicologists, so what toxicologists could do something called a read back, okay, or a read forward. Um, And what they would do is they can take your blood alcohol concentration at a certain time and using the science of alcohol elimination, they can read back your blood alcohol concentration at one time to an earlier time. Uh, We all know that people sober up over time, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, You drink, you sober up hopefully in the next uh, few hours or a few days if you drink enough. And um, uh, that's because alcohol eliminates from the body. And alcohol eliminates at a fairly predictable rate. Both defense and crown toxicologists, um, uh, and by that I mean uh, toxicologists who would typically testify more often for the defense or would typically testify more often for the crown, used the same rates, which is alcohol eliminates at a rate of 10, 20 milligrams of alcohol per 100 milliliters of blood per hour. Historically, if blood alcohol alcohol readings were taken more than two hours after the time of the offense, the presumptions in the criminal code didn't exist anymore, and you needed a toxicologist to come back in to give you a read back. So to say, okay, these are your your blood alcohol concentration samples now, or at the time of testing, at the time of driving, they would be X. Under the new legislation, there's, um, because the science is so well established, Parliament's Replace that with a statutory readback. So literally, um, the criminal code specifies um, how you should conduct that readback, and essentially, courts are expected to add five milligrams of alcohol per hundred milliliters of blood for each additional thirty minutes that pass after the two-hour offence period, um, which is going to reduce uh, the crowns. Need to talk call toxicologists where samples were taken later. Um, that's what that's happening there. Um, with respect to drugs, there has been some changes in relation to drug recognition officers. Um, uh, drug recognition officers' evidence is now statutorily deemed to be admissible um, uh, evidence, and um, there and in addition, there's a presumption that applies to that evidence that will apply in certain circumstances. So there are some. There's a number of evidentiary changes. Those are the two. Of, those are two of the significant ones.
1: Now, it used to be that you could have, um, you know, the Crown's expert testify, and then you could cross-examine the expert on factors that would um, affect the calculation and affect the rates of absorption and elimination, like bolus drinking, which of course is no longer a defense, but also, you know, certain drugs, diseases, emotional states, things like that can affect it as well. Has Parliament closed the door completely to that, or is there still an opportunity to um, raise a reasonable doubt or, or have the judge not apply the calculations
2: what what parliament's done is it's taken the most favorable rate and used that so it's taken the best case scenario for an accused person not for the crown not for the state Uh, in fact many people um may eliminate different rates that are more favorable to the crown parliament's taken the most favorable rate and used that in the legislation
1: Okay, so there's no, there's no sort of backdoor where you can argue that the stress of the accident caused a large dump of alcohol suddenly into the bloodstream or anything like that.
2: Uh, so you know what, uh, I would. My immediate reaction is, um, I'm not aware of any literature suggesting that's occurred, but in fact, if I was presented with that type of an argument, the first phone call I'd make would be to one of our toxicologists and say, okay, here's the argument, what do you have to say about it? Um, uh, That's typically my response when I get an unexpected sort of argument, but what what I can tell you is that Parliament's adopted the most favorable
1: rate. Okay, and um, Karen, do you anticipate that there would be lots of constitutional litigation about sort of the statutory absorption and elimination rates, or do you think that that's going to be something that comes up so rarely that it's not likely to be challenged?
0: You know, that's a... uh, I'm not sure. It just seems that... The way, it, since since the elimination of the Carter defense, really in two thousand and eight, um, it seems that the litigation has gone uh, so far away from what these calculations are. Uh, defense lawyers are concentrating on other things, and um, every toxicologist really gives you the same numbers. So I don't know if the judicial calculator is really anything different than what a toxicologist would do, save and except for some unusual situation that you brought up.
1: Okay. And I guess the last sort of most important and burning question for all of the practitioners out there is retrospective and prospective application what's you know what's going to happen to cases that are already in the system and awaiting trial
0: well the cases that are already in the system uh, awaiting trial they're charged under the um, the old sections and so they'll be litigated under those sections
1: there are peter though some sections that apply um, prospectively um, or, and and some that or sorry, some, there are some sections that apply retrospectively, um, particularly with respect to certain obligations on the Crown.
2: Sure. So really, really simply, there's a case called Dinley from the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, I don't recall the year of it, but it's D-I-N-E-L-E-Y. Um, and the Supreme Court of Canada dealt with this issue in, in a different context. It dealt with the, the elimination of the Carter defense back in 2008. Um uh the, uh the Carter defense, by way of background, was a defense where an accused person could come in and say, look, I, I know what my blood alcohol concentration readings were, but I'm sure they weren't that. Okay, I had this much to drink, I'm telling the truth. There, And the toxicologist would then come in and say, these are my future readings. It was the drinking and driving equivalent of, a, of an accused person coming in and saying, hey, that's not my DNA. It was unscientific, it was unreliable, and ultimately the courts have upheld the uh, the abolition of that defense. Um, what I can tell you is in addressing that, however, the Supreme Court of Canada said this. They said, look, if the change to the legislation is substantive, so for example, the new 18-over offense, that is clearly perspective only. So that's only going to apply to people who are charged um, after the legislation comes into force. If, however, the legislation is purely procedural in nature, that will apply both to new cases and to old cases that are existing in the system. An example of that may be the uh, disclosure regime, for example, which which arguably has not changed that. But don't
0: forget, Peter, prior to the Supreme Court of Canada making its pronouncement in Dynalee, the uh, Crown's Office always took the uh, position that it was retroactive, right? Uh, and... What Parliament's done this time is they've now, uh,
2: with certain provisions, there's a number of provisions that, that are now declared to be to be um, either prospective or uh, retrospective. Um, the, but there's still Dinley, which provides sort of an overarching view as to as to what provisions will be prospective. Or and, and
0: those uh, transitional provisions are provided in uh, section 320.32. Subsection 2, um, and if you want to, you know, take a look at our book, it's at page 427 of our very well-indexed book. <laughs> it tells you which of the provisions are retrospective, and, and uh, or are, are retrospective, which seems to be um, procedural things.
1: Yes, and the, the book is incredibly helpful for uh, setting that out for everybody who's, who's wondering about what's likely to be uh, prospective and what's likely to be retrospective. Um, I actually lied. I do have one final question for you, and it's a, a very serious one. Um, uh, what's the deal with only citing one of my cases through the whole... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh,
0: uh. <laughs> and one I lost, too. <laughs> That's Peter's fault? I had
1: nothing to that, do with That's it.
2: totally my fault. Absolutely. Yes.
1: I, like, scanned the index it was the first thing I do, and I was like, what? What? Only that one? Why that one?
0: <laughs> anyway, no. Uh, thank For you For many so others, but Peter said no. Right. Because they were all, like, too <laughs> favorable to the defense, right? <laughs> exactly. I'm just telling you, you know,
2: so Actually, that's, the, it's the, Peter's fault. The funny thing is, the funny thing, on that note, um, when Eamond, this whole series from Emond, has been put out, they recruited both crowns and defense counsel to write each of the books in this series. I think there's eight or nine or ten of them now in the series. And so each book has deliberately been written by um, a crown and a, a defense uh, who have some experience in the field. And the idea is to try and bring sort of a balanced uh, perspective to what's going on. I hope we've achieved that in the book. That was certainly the, object, the objective.
1: I certainly thought that you did. I I liked the the balance. There were some parts where I'm reading them and I'm like, oh, no, no, don't say that. And then the next line, I'm like, oh, okay, all right. Yeah, no, I'm (laughs) fine with this. So it was
0: good.
1: It was was an emotional roller coaster, but in a good way.
0: (laughs) Uh, I had to fight to get some of my points in there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I'm you know, I'm going to be very interested to see uh, the next edition um, that uh, comes from this, because I'm sure you guys, as the litigation progresses, will have a lot of updating to do for the next version. But for everybody out there who wants to obtain a copy of this now, and I highly recommend it, I, I brought it to the courthouse with me today and didn't bring it into court and actually needed it for a reference to a section in court today. So it's worth having, um, even if you do this stuff all the time. You can order the book uh, online. Um, you can either email orders at emond.ca, E-M-O-N-D, or on emond.ca slash professional. And if you give the discount code impairedpod10, uh, one zero, they will give you a 10% discount. Uh, uh, discount at checkout off the regular price of the book until January 15th, so don't delay. Uh, order the book now and save yourself 10%. It probably comes right out of uh, Peter and Karen's um, like royalties. So <laughs> uh,
0: We get royalties? Peter, nobody told me about this. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: But definitely uh, check it out, because I, I read it, um, and it's, a, it's an easy read, but it's incredibly informative um, and very, very useful. Um, so thank you both for joining me on the podcast.
0: Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.
1: Yeah, and I look forward to talking to you in the future and uh, keeping apprised of your careers. Thank you again to Karen Jokinen and Peter Keen for joining me on the Driving Law Podcast to talk about the Impaired Driving and Other Criminal Code Driving Offences book. I highly recommend it uh, to anybody at any experience level of impaired driving. It covers things that you would need to know if it was your first impaired driving case and that you would need to know if it was your 5,000th impaired driving case. So definitely check that out. And tune in next week uh, for another exciting episode of Driving Law. If you need to get in touch with me, Um, or uh, get any of the information we provided on the podcast, you can reach me at uh, um, uh, acumenlaw.ca, vancouvercriminallaw.com, or by phone at 604-685-8889, or email kyla at vancouvercriminallaw.com.